All right, we've got all kinds of social fun going up in here. All right, I'm going to start. Morning, everybody. How are we? All right, great, great. It's an honor to be able to speak this morning, Palm Sunday, and uh, as we prepare for Easter this next week. Uh, I've been asked to continue the series from the book, Following Jesus. Everybody up on what we're doing here? Yeah, and today's conversation is about sharing our faith. Oh, uh, do you need a book? We have some. Anybody want one? Feel free to raise your hand. All right, great. Sharing your faith. Uh, So I titled the sermon today, uh, Evangelism in the Age of Facebook. How many of you have a Facebook or Twitter or some other type account? Raise your hands. Come on. I want to really know kind of how to gauge this thing. Okay. All right. That's, That's the vast majority. Okay, great. Then my sermon won't go in vain. Um, But for those of you who don't have social media accounts, this will still be highly relevant, I think. When I was uh, growing up, I accepted Christ in junior high, and then kind of, you know, how it is, you kind of think it through and then leave a little bit and come back, and a few times of that in my life, and I was committed to, to Christ by about my freshman year in high school. And we were a part of a church that had a youth group that was very into evangelism, and they would teach us how to uh, you know, share our testimony, how to um, describe our journey, verses that were relevant, and we would go and do outreaches. We were the youth group that would literally go and preach on the street corner. Uh, a big outing for us was to go to the Vancouver uh, World's Fair in 1986, and uh, we went to uh, other places. We went to Ukraine uh, and did street drama. That was us. We were those people. Uh, and I look back on that time, and I'll be honest, uh, I look back on it with fond memories. Um, and I also look back and realize I don't want to be a street preacher, <laughs> uh, but that's not my calling. But I do have fond memories because it helped me clarify my faith and to become very clear about my willingness to say, I love Jesus. And uh, we got to the point where that was comfortable to do. Uh, as a group, and, and I look back on that um, in my life with fond memories, and then I, when I was 24, wandered into World Vision, big relief, and, uh, Christian relief and development organization in Federway, and, and I fell in love with the mission of serving the least of these with action, you know, uh, with works of service, and, and that was for 16 years we were there, and then we started So Powerful, uh, our charity, and And so my journey has been sort of mixed between the original clarity of of sort of the call to evangelism and also the call to serve the least of these. And then, of course, Facebook came along. Does anybody remember when Facebook came, when you first got Facebook? Yeah? Okay. You remember your first post? Does anybody remember their first post? You do? Okay. You remember your first post because it was recent. It was like a family Christmas photo kind of thing. There we are. There we are. So Facebook is really, um, you know, 1.4 billion people or something like that use the darn thing. It's amazing, isn't it? And I think as I've reflected on it, for my day job now for, for like the last oh, 10 years or more, I, I do social media marketing for e-commerce companies and consult. So I started blogging about social media in 2011. Marketing on Pinterest was the blog that I had, and I got a book deal with McGraw-Hill and wrote a book called Pinterest Power, and then a YouTube marketing book, and then an Instagram book. 
And so I'm sort of, I looked at these things from sort of the business perspective, but I also just been an observer of my own heart and my own like mental game around these things and then watching other people's posts. And the question for us today is uh, the question that all of us face on social media, but in person as well, which is what do we share with people? What do we post? Bottom line, I think over the last 10 years, we've been taught to set up on social media an image of our lives. And this is well-worn now thinking, and this isn't anything new to share, but basically we've been taught culturally to share an image of our life that is the shiny, happy version of us. You know, because we all go through this, like, what should I share about? Well, I just had my oil changed in my truck. No. Uh, well, uh, I have a tax bill due of $2,800 this year. No. You know, and we go through this mental script. What should we be sharing about? And um, we've, all, we've all gone there. A few well-worn paths have emerged. Uh, the first thing that culturally kind of kicked in was, uh, was geo-bragging. Everybody know what geo-bragging is? No? You don't know what geo-bragging is? Geo-bragging is when you're like, uh, so happy to be in Paris, France. You know, uh, hashtag blessed. <laughs> um, and that's geo-bragging. And, and we all learn these things together. Like, nobody knew what this stuff was, you know, 15 years ago. So we all learn these things. Like, hmm, I've done a lot of geo-bragging the last year and a half. Does that really feel right to me? I'm like, hey, we need to go somewhere so I can geo-brag on Facebook. Uh, it just doesn't, after a while, feel satisfying. And then, of course, there's humble bragging. Humble bragging, and everybody know what humble bragging is? Humble bragging is like, oh my gosh, I've lost so much weight. I have to go get new clothes. Hashtag bummer. <laughs> you know, it's like humble bragging. It's so like shallow. But we do this. We do this, don't we? And, and what you realize over time is there are things that are just like, mm, no, this doesn't feel good. Of course, the last couple of years, it's been all about politics. People have really gone deep into the political ranting. Uh, that's really ruined America, pretty much. Um, I mean, I see a lot of heads nodding, but no one wanted to say amen, but uh, that's, been, that's been gross. Um, and, and, and we are all learning these things together. How do we do evangelism in the age of Facebook? What are we called to do as believers in that context? And when I was thinking about these things, you know, this book, to be blunt, tells you sort of what to say, but in reading it, I was like, well... I think people kind of know what to say. The question is, will we say anything? You know, are we willing to say it? And um, so, you know, that's what my takeaway from this is. So read the chapter, and, but think through really our inner motiva motivations, I think, are more important to think through than the specifics of the, you know, the words we, we use as, uh, as we talk. I want to draw our attention to two passages this morning that I think shed a ton of light on this whole issue of what do we do in culture, how do we influence culture, and how do our words make a difference in the lives of ourselves, our, our community, uh, our culture, the world at large. I think it's fair to say, uh, so, so the scriptures I'll point you to is Daniel chapter 3 for the first one, and then we'll look at John. I, I think it's fair to say that um, the scripture is right that it, when it says, out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, and Facebook is basically a hot mic that allows us to broadcast our thoughts, 
the thinking of our heart to dozens, hundreds, thousands, even hundreds of thousands, and even millions if you share something that goes viral. Uh, And it's just really interesting to think about that dynamic. Well, Daniel chapter 3 is an interesting story, and I don't know how this ever turned into a children's story. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure it's appropriate. You know, Cinnamon and I teach the youngsters here sometimes, the three, four, five-year-olds, and some of the curriculum is stuff like this. We're like, and then they got thrown into a fiery furnace. <laughs> like, what in the world? <laughs> we always laugh, like, no, wait. Let's just talk about loaves and fishes and fun <laughs> things with the three-year-olds. Um, but... Anyway, Daniel chapter 3. The story, if you read it, is masterfully written. And the, the first, you know, four, five, six chapters of Daniel, masterfully structured writing. And it's actually, I think we get, we messed up a lot of the thinking of it. Because it is actually the story of a king coming to faith. And the stories that lead up to that. And... Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is the king, and then the story transcends, and then it's about his son coming to faith, and how uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and then Daniel were used in those regards. The broad story arc for this goes something like this, because I know we've all heard it a million times, and I think to read it, you'll be checked out, and you'll just think of veggie tales, and uh, you just sort of gloss over. But let me just describe the broad story arc. An egomaniacal tyrant king sets up his own religion and forces everyone to participate, not just through social pressure, but through the threat of death. That's the setup for the beginning of the story. And he unpacks in his own words how he comes to faith in the Lord. And what happens is, of course we know, uh, when the trumpet blows and the Three Hebrews don't bow down. They get called in front of them, right? They refuse to play his game. They refuse to participate in his his new religion. And they stand up. They say to him, Nebuchadnezzar, we're not in need of an answer to give to you concerning this matter, because he's asking, why aren't you bowing down? And they say in verse 17, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he'll rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we're not going to serve your gods nor worship the golden statue that you have set up. Of course, he gets furious. He tells the people to raise the furnace seven times hotter. He throws them in. The guys who throw them in die too. But then he sees a fourth person in the fire. Freaks him out a little bit. He goes over and says, come out of there. And then he says afterwards something to the effect of, now that uh, we see your God is most powerful, anyone who does not worship your God will be cut to pieces. Now, that's not his conversion to anything that's other than a tyrannical, crazy guy, right? He just has changed sort of the the religion. And so, so he's not there yet. He's not really clear in his own heart or mind about whether faith makes sense. He just sees power. And he's interested in that. 
but not changed. And then the next act of the play unfolds, and he has a dream about a tree that's huge, and an angel comes down and says, cut down this tree, and he doesn't understand the meaning of the dream. And so he calls Daniel and says, Daniel, will you explain the dream? And Daniel says, the dream's about you. You're the tree, and you're the one who needs to repent. And Daniel says, therefore, O king, my advice... um, May my advice be pleasing to you. Wipe away your sin by doing righteousness and your wrongdoings by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be an opportunity to prolong your prosperity. And the king doesn't listen. And a year later, the king is literally saying to himself, aren't I great? And he goes insane. And he goes insane in the ways in which the dream predicted. And he's nuts. And he's out of his mind. And then he comes back to his senses. And he realizes what's happened. And he repents. And he comes to faith. And he says, at the end of the period, this is King Nebuchadnezzar in his own words, at the end of the period, I raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. And then in verse 36, it says, at that time, my reason returned to me and my, my majesty and my splendor were restored to my, for my kingdom's sake. And then he goes on to say, and now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of kings, the King of heaven, for all his works are true. And his ways are just, and he's he's able to humble those who walk in pride. And I think what this narrative, this story tells us is really when it comes to evangelism, there's sort of three core things that begin to emerge, three pillars that emerge for, for us that we can learn from. The first one is the words that we speak matter. The words we speak are key to it. The second thing is the actions we take, what we do. With our, with our actions. And then the third thing is the miracles God does through us and with us to influence people for the kingdom. Words, actions, and miracles. And I know you might be thinking, miracles, mm, haven't had any of those lately, but let's talk through that and let's think about this a little bit. I want to turn to John chapter 1. John is just a miraculously written book as well. I mean, if you haven't really taken the time to go slow and go through the book of John, it's just beautifully written. And I think it unpacks a little bit more. We're going to look at John 1 and then John chapter 9. And, um, and I think we'll get another lesson or two out of this. John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not the light, but was sent to bear witness to that light. Now, the book of John uses this phrase to bear witness a bunch of times. I think it's like 13 times, and then in all of John's writings, it's like 35 times, something like that. The bear, the, to bear witness. And it's really interesting idea to bear witness. What does it mean 
because, um, you know, bear, like rah, is not the, the word there, but it's B-E-A-R. But, but what it means, if you remember, like Wikipedia or, or Webster's, is to carry the weight of something or to support something that's heavy, to endure something, to endure an ordeal. So John, in, in, in his writing, is, is describing, he doesn't talk about evangelism. He doesn't talk about proclamation. He talks about bearing witness, to bear witness. It's such an interesting phrase to think about, that, that what he's suggesting is that John, from the beginning of the account, was, was holding up or, or enduring the, the message of the gospel. And socially, of course, he was killed for that. And I think it's interesting that that phrase is sort of it's telling. And then it goes on to say that, you know, John testifies and bears witness to the light, and that light was the light which gives light to every man by, by its coming into the world. That idea of the light coming into the world is a direct reference back to Isaiah 42, 43, and 49, where, where John is talking about uh, Christ being the light of the world. And I think it's, it's interesting for us to think about how if we're called to bear witness to the light, it'll be a weight. It'll be heavy. You know, um, when I was, uh, you know, 15 and we would, would go out and we went to the Vancouver's World Fair and we would do a drama on the street and then we would, we would share our testimony to the crowd that gathered. Just before you do that, there's a huge weight mentally. Like you're like, can I do this? And it makes you really think about, is my right, life right? Do I have a testimony that's clear? Am I living in a way that my life would speak that this is true? All of those things flood in. It's a weight we bear. And it's something that we really think through uh, with seriousness, I think. In John chapter 9, there's an interesting story. It says, Now Jesus passed by and he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must, and Jesus says, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And then, of course, Jesus transfers that concept to us in Matthew 5 when he says, you are the light of the world. Us. We are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may, everybody knows it, but they may see, no one, no one knows this, so that they may, it's the word see, that they may see, see. your good deeds are, 
And glorify your Father in heaven. Right? So the story in John 9 goes something like this. Jesus does the most interesting of miracles. He spits in the mud, and then he wipes it on the guy's eyes, and then he goes and tells him to dip in the pool uh, of this, this uh, you know, pool of Salome. And then he comes up, and he's blind, and he's, he, he can see. And he was blind from birth. And then the Pharisees um, gather around, and they start really trying to understand what happened. You know, like, wait, wait, wait. They kind of start to inquire. And they have a real beef with Jesus at this point because, um, because Jesus was doing stuff on the Sabbath. And they had decided that that meant he was a sinner, and that meant he was out from, you know, the, the, from their point of view and were wrong. And so they're grilling this guy about whether he really was blind and on and on. And they call his parents and say, hey, was this guy, is, is this your son? And was he really blind? And they were so afraid of the Pharisees and the religious, you know, impact or the, the social impact of saying anything that they said, well, he's an adult, go talk to him directly. And they ask him again, what happened? And he said, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go, the pool of Sol- Solome, Soloam, and wash there. So I went and washed, and I received my sight. And they really challenged him and were really saying, you know, like, are you lying or what's the deal? And is Jesus a sinner? And he said, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I know. I was blind, and now I see. I was blind, and now I see. And I think these these passages remind me that we've got an opportunity to do a few things right on Facebook and on social media. And we've got lots of opportunities to do things wrong. And the question is, what will we do as we go into Easter week this week, the question is, what will we do on social media? And I guess the question I'd ask you is, what's the highest hope that you can bring to anyone this week? The world is screwed up. Our culture is screwed up. Our towns are screwed up. Our families are screwed up. We're screwed up. Like, there's a lot wrong. And the only question is, what is the highest hope we have that we can point people to. And it is not the best pizza in Sumner, Washington. (laughs) It's not the pet store that's the best in Renton. It's not the trivial, is it? We know it's not. It's not that. It's an opportunity to use our hot mic to say to those who might listen, I was blind. Now I see. If you want a formula for copywriting for Facebook posts that will knock your socks off, do it like this. I was, and insert what you were before Christ got a hold of you. And then say, and now, and say something about the goodness of God and how he's changed your life. That post will be a beautiful expression of your personal situation and what Christ means to you. And the question is, can we do that? 
And I, I reflect back on my own social media posts. And I look at what I've done. And maybe you do the same thing. Go back through your last 10 posts. And just ask the question, was this the highest hope of heaven? Did I make a note about my king? I think that the uh, Pharisees here point out two things that really can jam us up. They can jam us up, us personally, in our hearts and minds. And the first thing that we can, we can get into, and I'll call it a spirit or an attitude, and that's the, the spirit. And I'll just say, these, these, in a way, have a form of godliness to them in our minds, but they really lack any anointing. They lack a actual truth and depth. And the first one is a religious spirit. A religious spirit, which is us asserting theology onto people, is worthless. And we all know, and we all, we all, as we mature in Christ, and we go to different churches, and we study the scriptures, we all get opinions. And we all get sort of our points of view, or pre-trib, post-trib, or whatever, sprinkle baptism, or full immersion, or like whatever the things are, you know? Um, and we get our points of view. And a religious spirit can creep up inside us. And when a religious spirit creeps up inside you, that becomes the main thing. Your rightness and the other people's wrongness. That is not the way of life. And it's not the way of life on social media. It's not the way of life socially. We know this, right? We know people who are affected by a purely religious spirit. And it's just like, mm, no, something's not right there. The second one is a political spirit. And in the last couple of years, it's just possessed, I think, possessed people almost. I'm not trying to use, I'm trying to use social, I'm trying to say it in a social setting, kind of social way, not a super spiritual way, but I think the political spirit has possessed people. A political spirit asserts political demands on the culture. And I'll tell you, I was a kid when the moral majority came along in the 80s or 70s. And I look back on that time, if you're not familiar, if, if, if you're younger than me, you never heard of that. How many have heard of the moral majority? Okay, most of the people in this room are over 60. Um, well, okay. I, it's true. I didn't mean most of you are over 60. The moral majority was the whole movement of Christians being super political. Problem was, we weren't moral. And that's the truth of it. And uh, I just can't tell you how many Christian leaders we've seen in the last two, three, four years just been scandalized by you know, fall after fall. And it's just, it's just, it's just uh, gut-wrenching. And the political spirit wants to assert demands on the culture. If we get into that in, you know, kind of in full bloom on Facebook, like it was in the 80s, it'll lead to nothing. Except the culture saying, eh, no. It's not the way of life. It's just not. And so I ask you again, what's the highest and best hope you can bring to anyone as you share, whether it's on social media or in person. And I think it's Jesus. Amen? I don't think it's politics. I don't think it's religious uh, 
you know, kind of uh, theology debates, trying to correct people on Facebook. I think it's the highest hope is bringing the love of the Lord to everyone. My strong conviction this morning is that we can really, really do things amazingly well together on social media. And we really have a huge opportunity to share like we never have before. I mean, basically, Mark Zuckerberg handed all the Christians a hot mic and said, share what you want to share. And I'll be really honest, it hasn't gone that well. But I really honestly believe that we can think this through. And we can really say to ourselves, wait, 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 wait. I'm not going to talk about my koi or my puppy anymore. I'm going to talk about the person, sorry, in this universe who's changed my life and my heart. None of us know how long we'll live or how long we'll be around. We don't know how many times we'll have to share with somebody. And the opportunity to share with them about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is rare. And we treat it like it's trivial. And it's just not. And so I want to challenge you today. Sorry, I'm so whiny. This is horrible. <laughs> challenge you today to really think about how you can share uh, on social media and in person. How your words and your actions and even miracles can let the truth of Christ be revealed. And you might say to yourself, how can a miracle happen? And I'll just point out a few things, and I want to I swing this to encouraging, challenging, positive, constructive <laughs> as we end and, uh, and give you a few ideas. You know, there are some people who I've seen on social media who just crush it in the right ways. One of them is my old pastor, uh, Mel Grahams. He was my pastor in 1992, 93. He was in his 60s then, and he's still on Facebook. <laughs> I think he's 92. I think he graduated from high school in 1948. So I think he's like, I think he's around 92 or something like that. And if you go look at his Facebook posts and his feed, here's the basic tenor of his posts. I woke up this morning with a song on my heart. You might not have heard it because it was written in 1842, but it says, boom, and he hits it, and it's like, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. And he just does these types of posts that are all about Jesus, all about encouragement, all about the love of God making a difference in his life and in everyone's life. And when you read his feed, you're like, wow, this guy's got, you know, game on, strong social media skills. He's 92, but his heart's right. You know what I mean? Like he's got, his senses are right. He's trying to encourage people. He's trying to really be a shepherd to people and to really bring something that will encourage someone's heart. And when I read his post, I'm like, man, I want to be like that guy on Facebook. And there are other posts that we can do that are so easy that go in the right direction. One of the things I've been trying to do lately is just hear a great song and share it. You know, I use Spotify, so that's what I share, but other people use Apple Music. Hear a great worship song, just share it. I love this song. This song might touch your heart. Um, that's a beautiful, beautiful thing to do. And let the words of music touch people's lives. 
Another thing that we can do is just pray for people. Somebody's doing something or you see something and just literally say, I'm, you know, I'm going to pray for you. When we commit to praying for people, we open a door for miracles. And you know, this isn't even like a, I mean, I, this is not about socially posting, but you know, if you see something, somebody on Facebook that's like, I just lost my job, or you know, like something that's weighty. I saw, I saw one yesterday, a lady said, I just got diagnosed and I didn't remember, I, I don't understand the form of the cancer stages or whatever, but she said it was like factor three or something like that, breast cancer. And, um, and she said, thanks for prayers. And, and people rallied around her and were encouraging her. And even when you see something like that, just private message, messaging them, hey, I'm, I really mean it when I'm saying I'm praying for you. Opening the door for God to work a miracle in people's life. Opening the door for God to show up in a special way. And it not to be about us or our status or about what our involvement is. It's about the Lord's work in people's life. You know, the story of Daniel in the lion's den and, and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's not really even about them. It's about the king. It's about his conversion. His coming to the place where he said, I understand this now. Because of the bold action, the words and the actions and the miracles of these people. And so I just want to encourage you. This is, you know, it's Palm Sunday. We've got this week leading up to Easter that many, many people think of uh, Christianity and church, Christ, this week. Let us be ones who push them in the right direction towards understanding the goodness of God in the land of the living. Amen? Let us be ones who lift up the name of the Lord. And her willing to say, this week, I'm going to talk about the highest and best hope. The very best thing that we can bring. Jesus. In all his glory, his power, and see what happens. I would just speculate that if every person who believed did one post this week, about the goodness of God and about what Christ could do or has done in their life, I'll bet you, I'll bet you we would break the internet. I think we can do it together. I don't think we understand how big a reach we have. I don't think we understand how powerful a message we have. I don't think we understand how easy an opportunity we have, but it's all there. If we'll just take a minute and compose a message and encourage people to look into the claims of Christ and tell them about what he's done in our life. Can I get a witness? Okay, let's pull out our phones. Open your Facebook. Some of you are like, oh, my Lord, he's not going there right now. <laughs> but let me ask you, okay, wait, before, we're, almost, we're almost done, we're almost done. But let me just ask you this. If I challenge you to take your Facebook app and open it and make a message about the proclamation of what Christ has meant in your life, but you, but you immediately say to yourself, no, um, mm -mm. pray about that. Pray about that. What's, this, what's the barrier? 
Revelations chapter 12. It's a powerful, powerful story about Satan being thrown out of heaven. He's called the accusers of the brethren. A lot of times we won't share because we think to ourselves, oh, I burned the cookies yesterday. I can't share about Christ. Oh, I, I messed up. I'm standing here today, and I was, as I was preparing for this message, thinking about saying something to someone this week that was unkind. I'm a hypocrite. I'm up here talking about words, actions, and miracles, and yet I was kind of a jerk to somebody. The answer to that is to not be an evangelist. The answer is to get holy. (laughs) The answer is to repent. The answer is to go back and make right. The answer is examine our own hearts, right? And then say, okay, I've sorted out my mess. Now I'm going to proclaim the goodness of God in the land of the living. Well, in Revelations uh, 12, as that story unfolds, there's this powerful, powerful verse. It talks about the believers, and it says at the end of the age when there's war in the heavenlies and Satan is being you know, kicked down, uh, you know, kicked out, and there's a whole thing here. Sorry, that was a really bad summary of Revelations. But, but the point is, verse 11 says, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives even unto death. Super heavy, right? And we realize that there are a lot of places where we, don't, where we have religious freedom. We have freedom of speech here, and it's a huge luxury. And we realize there are a lot of places that don't. And the more I've traveled around the world and seen different places and understood, oh, this is a luxury we have. We aren't granted this permanently. There's no saying that we could always be able to say that we love Jesus without consequence of losing our life. There's just no context in which that's historically, like, common. And here we have it. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives even unto death. Really, really heavy there. Your testimony has power. My testimony has power. It's not, with no disrespect, it's not the Billy Grahams. It's not the Billy Grahams. It's us sharing our testimony. And there's power there. We can change culture. Culture changes when people share their testimony. And the reason is because from the social context... Culture has changed when the people who are willing to die for what they believe do it in mass. And that's what that's where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like that's what they were demonstrating. We will die for this. And it changes culture because then people say, wait, wait, wait. Well, then we need to make space for those guys. Religious freedom. That's like one of the foundational ideas. Judeo-Christian value. Free speech. These things flow. These are connected culturally. They flow from us being willing to share the goodness of God in our life. And so I just challenge you this week. You got seven days. Wait, yeah, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Eight days, including today. 
Could you do a post proclaiming the goodness of God on each one of those eight days? Or maybe just pick one. Maybe Good Friday. Will you? How many would raise their hand and say, I'll, I'll take a shot at that? Social media people, all right. Yeah. If you don't do Facebook, then do it in person. There you go. Let's share the good news of God. Amen? Would you stand with me and let's pray together. Lord, we're so grateful that we get to love you, learn from you, walk with you, talk with you. And Lord, that you lead us and guide us in truth, even in the wild and wacky cultural settings like Facebook. And we're so grateful, God. We're so grateful that you've given us the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, who leads us into all truth. And God, we just give you our lives today, and we ask that you would use us as instruments of peace. Lord, we ask that you'd use us to be an encourager to somebody who's discouraged this week. We ask that you'd use us to share in a positive and constructive way what you've done in our life so that others would know that Jesus is the answer. We believe it, Lord, and we want everybody else to know it. We pray our lives would live up to that message. We pray that we would, we would even be open to praying for people and seeing you work wonders, even miracles in people's life as a witness of your goodness. We ask it all today in Christ's name. And everyone said, amen. 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 Yes, and Cindy would like to share. Um, for us, those of us that aren't Facebook people and um, in-person sharing, I just felt the Lord stirring this in me. The most important thing we can do when we're talking with somebody outside of faith or in that place of inquiry, and I deal with people all day, you know, almost every day, is the tenderness of Jesus. It's not even so much the words we say, and I'm not taking away from what Jason was saying, but when I sit down with somebody and I can show them through my eyes, through my attitude, through my body language, that they are super important to God. That is the biggest open door for people coming to faith. It's love that heals it's love that covers a multitude of sins. And you and I can do that. We don't have to be super intellectual. We don't even have to know how to do Facebook. But we can, with every person that we meet, that God gives us the opportunity, we can look at them with eyes of compassion and really see them and communicate to them that God loves them. And uh, I just want to seal that, okay? Amen. Yep. Lord, we thank you that because of your love poured out in our heart, God, that we can love others with your love. And God, stir that up within us today and throughout this Passion Week. God, your great love flowing out through us. And God, I pray that we will be mindful of the people that you bring across our path, whether it's the clerk at the store or somebody we meet out for a walk and just that little bit of eye contact that says, I see you. God, whatever it is, help us to be mindful of all the ways you want us to share who you are and your great love for people. So we say yes to that, to the work of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.